Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Now, folks, the Helpful Marriage Conference is next week. We have over 150 people coming to the conference, but there is room for more, and it's going to be great. So head on over to HelpfulMarriage.com and register today. Now, this will be the fourth episode in our series on marriage. Today, we're talking about birth control. The universal testimony of both Scripture and the Church through the ages has been to oppose the use of birth control, and yet even the most conservative churches in our country have completely embraced it and consider childbearing and contraception to simply be a question of stewardship. I hope our conversation today is challenging, helpful, informative, but mostly I hope it strengthens your faith. There's nothing quite so wonderful and scary as bringing a child into the world. It's risky and therefore terrifying. But God gives grace for the work, and there are joys you will never know apart from the work and the pain of raising children. My guests for today's episode are Max Carell and Tim Bailey. Jody Killingsworth joins us as well as our special guest. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds podcast. Well, hello, gentlemen. How are you guys doing? Just fine. <laughs> Wonderful. We're ha- we have uh, Jody here with us today. How are you doing, Jody? I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yep. Yep. Happy to have you. Today, we're going to continue our conversation about marriage, and in particular, we're going to talk about birth control. And I wanted to start by telling a story that uh, an experience I had. I was at a. We were actually. It was actually an abortion protest that we were at, and I happened to have the opportunity to start up a conversation with a young woman about the topic of abortion. We started talking about what the purpose of sex is. And so I I just asked her the question. And it was clear to me in, in the conversation that she had no concept that sex had anything to do necessarily with having children. It was just like a completely foreign concept to her that sex and babies go together. And I, I think that, experience was illustrative of the way we really all do think today. Uh, One way to put that is it is kind of like the homosexualization of sexual relations. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in a podcast, but that's what I think, that sex is really just all about you know, it could be about relationship with the other person, but not necessarily, you know, it, it, but it's it's mostly about pleasuring myself, your, you know, oneself, and it does not have any necessary connection to things like family or, or even necessarily relationship. Uh, it doesn't have anything, any necessary connection, obviously, to children. But that is not at all what we see in scripture, not at all. And it's not at all what we see in church history. Tim, I wanted to ask you about this because you have been hard at work uh, on a document about abortion with a group in Evangel Presbytery. Can you just just real quickly give us a, a brief synopsis of what, what's going on there? Yeah, Pastor Joseph Spurgeon down in Louisville of one of our churches has been with his elders concerned that we deal a little bit with 
what the proper response of Christians is to the slaughter of the unborn today. Mm-hmm. So the Presbytery asked a group of us to work on it. We've been at work for the last few months, and uh, the document at this point is quite long. It's broken into thirds. The first third is the growth of slaughter in the 20th century, you know, the world mm-hmm. wars, the mm-hmm. trench warfare, then increasingly in the wars, it was citizens who died majority in the first and second were citizens like 50 of 70 million Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then that rulers began to slaughter their citizens you know you think of mao yep yep. you know of stalin Stalin, hitler and then the slaughter moved into the home Mm. enemies and the total of that so the totals go from you know somewhere between 75 and 100 million wars of civilians and soldiers then it goes up to somewhere i don't know i mean it's debatable but somewhere on the order of 100 to 200 million when it comes to uh rulers killing then with abortion it goes into the many billions now people listening are going to think where are you coming up with billions and that's what we're documenting Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. giving citations for And then the second section is a section on the actual method by which we kill our children. Mm. And it is a deep dive into the issue of birth control Mm. because an awful lot, I would say far and away the majority of contraceptives that are used and have been used from the beginning are actually abortifacient. They have an agency that's abortifacient. And we try to establish what the frequency of that is abortifacient agency is as opposed to preventing fertilization mm. and uh, it's it's a very clear thing from all the pharmaceuticals and from universities that have embryology courses online all the scientists agree but what they've done is they've changed the definition of conception always previous conception had been when the egg is fertilized by the sperm but back in the 50s and 60s, the American College of OB-GYN obstetricians and gynecologists changed the definition by uh, saying that now conception is successful implantation of the mm. embryo on the wall of the, the fertilized embryo. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, the whole point in doing that is to keep people from being squeamish about not having children using abortifacients, because back then abortion was still hated and condemned by everyone. Mm-hmm. And then the last third is, you know, to quote Schaefer, how should we then live? Mm-hmm. How should we live as churches, as individual Christians, as pastors, as medical people? So anyhow, that's well, what we've been working this on. Is, this has obviously been a, you know, I've watched some of the progress of this work. I'm, I'm, I feel a little weird to say I'm excited about it because it's such a terrible, horrifying subject, but I think it'll bear a lot of good fruit. I trust that it will. And the men have been working very hard at it, and I think it'll be just very helpful to the church in general. So, Can I take the conversation back to something you said earlier, Lucas, where you were talking to her and she's just thinking about the pleasure of sex, right? mutual gratification, gratifying each other. Yeah. What has happened to sex in the 20th century is we've all become dualists and decided bodies don't matter, only mm. spirits do. Right. And I ran into this back in about 1985 or 86 when each denomination, mainline denominations, Presbyterian Church USA, had 
different reform renewal groups in it. And the executives of those groups would get together once a year. Don Blesch was a theologian who sort of helped pull it together, the good news people from United Methodists. Um, I represented Presbyterians pro-life in the PCUSA. I bring this up because when we met at Asbury College, the good news guys brought in a tall steeple pastor, a very successful, dignified, uh, rich, large church and a pastor suitable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he came in and he was an ev- evangelical and he had been on the church's uh, committee to study sexuality. So he came to us to report about the battle against homosexuality because that was what was consuming all of us at the time. Mm. And so he talked about how awful all the liberals were, but how he felt that there there was an attempt by the conservatives to hold the line. And that's always the narrative everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And at the end, I was sitting there listening, and I looked at him when he got done, and I said, now, I said, if we've decided that having children is a lifestyle option, Mm -hmm. a choice, and that it's not simply to open ourselves to this blessing from God, but that it is a question of stewardship, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't get it. I mean, doesn't this make sense? If we've really relegated the fruitful bed of love between a husband and wife to sort of a technical, methodological sort of pill kind of, you know, decision. Yeah. Okay. Don't you think we've undercut the whole gift of God of marriage and children? And doesn't it make sense that, of course, the homosexuals are saying, well, you know, marriage isn't about having children. Right. Marriage is about who you love, and you can't love anybody wrong. Right. And I said, really, this this is just naturally the fruit of us deciding that we don't want children. Yeah. And I was kind of innocent at that point. You yeah. know? I was just asking what I thought was a good question. Well, all hell broke loose huh. because that very wealthy very dignified man of a very rich church who was a very evangelical man, (laughs) you know, he came unglued and he was furious with me. And he said to me, well, what do you want? Do you want us to go back to be, to be like the people of India and China? You know, we're just going to have women being, you know, and he just started ranting about me being a dinosaur who crawled out from a rock and wanted uh-huh, to go back uh-huh. to India where they, you know, you can smell poop everywhere you walk, <laughs> you know? And I learned something that day. And I learned the same thing you learned. Yeah. Which is that I had struck a nerve and therefore it probably mattered. That nerve mattered. And right. from then on, I just began. And one of the first things I did was I bought a book that's a history of uh a biography of Margaret Sanger published by Yale. And I read the history of Margaret Sanger. This is an, a screed written by a conservative. It won, I think, the Bancroft Prize Oh wow! as a biography. But anyhow, and I, I've never turned back. I was woke <laughs> that apparently being fruitful was a fault line that Christians were studiously avoided. Mm. There was a time, though, when a man and a woman were getting ready to be married and there was no question about what birth control are we going to use. Yeah. 
Now, it was before I was born or, you know, not long maybe, but there was a time when you think about it that a couple getting married were, were just looking at marriage and they just, the intimacy that they were about to engage in in marriage, yeah, they knew and assumed could or would produce children there was no talk of birth there control. wasn't, it wasn't any, even there on was, their mind it, yeah what was on their mind was that marriage would bring about children. or very likely bring about children mm-hmm. and that was just assumed and that was there wasn't anything and it's strange to think that at some decade in time now mm-hmm. of course even at that time i mean back thousands of years there have been ways that people have tried yeah, I mean, you birth control has been around for a very long time. And so, an abortion has been abortion around for been a long time. Yes. But for the most part. In the part, ancient world, yeah. both of them were widely yeah, practiced. Yeah, yeah, Right. But for the most part, say say people, say God's people. Uh, I'm going to stop you for a second here and just say, there are a lot of important things in this book we're working on, but one of the things we have to nail here is the modern conceit, and that's one of the crowning truths about moderns is that we are so conceited we're the first generation that loved our wives and our mothers yes, yeah, we're stupid. the first generation and and people think today that people in the past could not contracept their their intercourse and could not kill their unborn children and it just shows the ignorance of history Mm. And so I want to hammer this home. If anybody's listening to this and thinking, well, we have to reappraise the issue from, you know, the early church and from the Old Testament because they didn't have the scientific understanding and the, you know, no, 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 no. They had the same temptations and did the same things, the same sins, had the same godliness that we have. All right. And so just nail that down. Don't think that we have to make decisions people before us didn't have to make. Okay. I'm sorry, I interrupted you, and I want you to finish. Well, all I was saying was that there was a time when it flipped. People could have always made those decisions, but believers would have understood clearly that that's not why they were entering into marriage. That Mm. that that wasn't the prerequisite to the marriage ceremony is that you make sure you got your birth control lined up. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it, it would have been taught oppositely. Right. And then at some point it became that we in, that we in the church that Christians actually embraced till the point where everybody when I was at the time my wife and I were getting married everybody that would have been a regular kind of conversation that would have been had prior to the wedding ceremony is hey have you figured out what birth control mm-hmm. you're going to use mm-hmm. which is a complete flip for mm-hmm. God's people. Mm-hmm as we see it you know it those things were always available but god's people didn't generally approach marriage with that in mind and then it flipped so i think the thing to say just very bluntly the witness of the church throughout thousands of years literally has been to oppose birth control uniformly uniformly to oppose birth control and abortion and doing it in the same breath yeah both things and I think that it's very hard, you know, when a when a modern evangelical, modern Christian hears that, it's like, it's so utterly foreign. I remember when I first came across that, I just thought, wait a second, that doesn't, how does that even work? <laughs> uh, and now let's stop right here. <laughs> okay. We have two young fathers or middle-aged fathers looking at each other across the table. And I think at this point we should have some discussion between the two of them of their existential angst. 
Well, we're going to get to that eventually. I well, don't... yeah, but just right now, as you say, how does that even work? People should know how many children you have and how many he has. All right. Well, I've got seven I've got kids. more than Lucas. <laughs> He's winning. He's I'm, winning. I'm winning. <laughs> He's got eight kids. I've got seven kids. So, And are all of them easy? No. Okay, now I'm willing. I just think people have to understand. No, you it's guys very talk. heavy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It just gets heavier. It plenty of joys, unbelievable joys. I Jenna and I often stop and look at each other, have these moments when we just need to remind ourselves of the goodness of fruitfulness. But we do smile tons more than we ever would have without children. And that's that's inarguable. It's just you just. I remember what my life was like. It was, I thought it was good, <laughs> and now I have eight children, and it is so abundantly good, so full of blessings, so many joys, so many beautiful things. But it is very heavy. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think of things like okay, so there have to be enough adults in the room to handle the number of children that need like an adult help <laughs> so like thinking to myself I, I don't know how to put it exactly no they don't and that's something you don't discover until you're around a large family what happens well, is the oldest children yeah last night sitting at the dinner table with D joseph and heidi yeah i was so impressed they've got a little punk that in their home now <laughs> his name is peter yeah Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater. And uh, this kid, you put him anywhere near food and he just yells and yells and yells and demands food and yells and yells and he's already fat. <laughs> and, and he just disrupts everything. And Joseph and Heidi are so tired, plus they just had a very sad thing happen in, in their married life. They lost a little one at 16 weeks. But anyhow, in the middle of this, their oldest Tate just turns to Peter and says, Peter, be quiet. Well, Peter didn't obey. Mm -hmm. And I, Grandpa's sitting across the table. And I look over at Peter and I say, Peter, you obey your brother. And immediately he got quiet and sat down. And then he looked at me and Tate. How old is Peter? Uh, year uh, and a half. Uh, yeah, something like that. Okay. Yeah, he's pretty young. And so don't get depressed that you have to have the number of adults that there are children needing adult no, care. Well, I think a lot of moms especially struggle with this because they have this, they're nurturers. They know the goodness and the healthiness of children having their mother, having their mother read to them, mm -hmm. having their mother cuddle them. And they think, how can I possibly do this for four kids or five kids or six kids? <laughs> uh, we better just keep it at two. Yeah, yeah. Because I think that's what I can I can give them what they need, and and they really need it because it's important and it is. But what we've discovered is one, you have you don't know what you're capable of. You yeah. underestimate it. But two, your ch other children step in and help, and quite often in ways that they don't even realize that they're doing it. It's just natural mm -hmm. and sweet. They'll 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 pick up a book and read to their sibling. Yeah. Well, so it's it's weird that we went on this tangent and that I was the cause of it, I suppose. But I'm trying to think about, because in, if you think of my family, my kids, other kids help with the younger kids quite a lot. In my case, the, the reason I think about that is I think, okay, 
So you have a newborn who has to have his his or her mother often till they get past that point, but a lot of times needs the, the mother. And then in my case, uh, my kids, there are some things that they can help with Mary, but there's a lot of things they cannot do. Mm-hmm. They just physically can't do. And um, your handicapped child. Bree is able now to start some things, but I mean, mm-hmm. we have left Bree to be in charge of the home. That's your oldest daughter. She's he, how old? Uh, she's 12. Okay. We've left her at home and come back to her in complete meltdown mode because mm-hmm. of the challenge of having to change mm-hmm. Mary's diaper. It was like a traumatic experience mm-hmm. for her because mm-hmm. she's yelling and fussing and I don't know. So, mm-hmm. um, well, I mean, it's when not we- that it's not that I think that I, what you said is exactly right, Tim, that the, the, as the kids get older, they help share the load and like yesterday, it was amazing. My my uh, my son Jerome fell on the ice and he busted his chin open immediately. His mother wasn't even there, but his older sister was comforting him, helping him, mm. talking to him, sitting next to him. I mean, doing everything that a mother and he's going to remember that. You know, he's going to know that his sister was. Tender. Oh, my sister Deborah, <laughs> her care for me when yeah. my mother sort of went into her cocoon after losing her second child. Yeah. And my sister, she would comb my hair. She would dress me. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about how Brie melted down. But, you know, when Mary Lee gave birth to Joseph back at seminary, one night, my brother David, who was at seminary, came over to care for Joseph. And, he, and David melted down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, David had to change a diaper. And he, he like, spent, I don't know how much time changing that <laughs> diaper. It was a, it was dirty, and he he spread stuff out on our floor, and then he got a fan, and he had the fan set up so it would blow sideways across the body of Joseph, you know, and he wouldn't smell the poop, you know, and then he went into the bathroom to get I don't know toilet paper or something, and he came back and knelt down to finish changing the diaper, and right when he knelt down, Joseph peed all over him, you know, so yeah, yeah. it's not like adults don't melt down change. I don't think David ever recovered from that. (laughs) Well, the scripture says that God's grace is sufficient for our weakness Mm -hmm. and the multiplication of children exposes weakness. Yes, it does. Absolutely. And we don't like to be weak. Mm -hmm. And we know that there's an increasing level of personal weakness that we feel and experience and exhibit as parents, as their children multiply. Mm -hmm. But God's grace is sufficient for that, and there is an abundance of grace in it that I can testify to as a father and as a husband. And my wife, if she was here, would be nodding along. Yeah. That there is, it's very difficult. It is sacrifice. It is death to self. Mm -hmm. It's costly. It's fearful especially I'm feeling this as my children start to become teenagers. Yeah, it's yeah. just oh, terra incognito. <laughs> yeah. Conversations suddenly become much more risky than when you're talking to your six-year-old. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's much easier to change a dirty diaper than it is to rebuke pride. Yep. Mm-hmm. At this point, though, people listening are going to be, okay, so right now we're answering the, pro- the uh, protests against having children. Yeah, these are why why this is why we don't want to have children, and maybe that these are the answers that 
ought to be given as we talk about what the Bible says about children and as we talk about the the horrors of our barrenness. But I'm not sure, Lucas, we're well, getting to the yeah, question. Yeah, so what, where I was headed initially was to just to open up about the universal witness of the church, of Scripture, uh, opposing birth control, and how much of a shock that is to the modern I'm going to ask Lucas to read an excerpt from the paper on abortion or the book on abortion we're doing, which does a superb job of shocking us into realizing how how drastic and how much of a reversal it was when the church all of a sudden started using birth control and contraceptive devices. It was on the same level of radical as the feminist movement, which anthropologists who are pagan say it's the most radical social change the world has ever seen. Pagans say that. And that was the level of drastic reversal when Christian couples began protecting themselves from pregnancy. Okay. I want this read because this is an excerpt from the Washington Post. In about 1930, the Anglicans at their decennial Lambeth conferences. 30 years earlier, or 20, I forget which it was, at another one of their Lambeth, they had actually said, talked about the sin of trying to obstruct pregnancy in the marital act. Okay, so within a decade or two, and then in the 1930s, they said that, you know, basically they gave God's approval to obstructing pregnancy in the marriage bed. And the Washington Post wrote a piece against their decision. This is Washington Post that's owned by that dude, whatever his <laughs> name is, that owns... Uh, Bezos. Yeah, Bezos that owns... Uh, Amazon. And Amazon, yeah, 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 yeah. And so this is what it said in 1930, right? So this is from the document on abortion. In what may defy belief among those unaware of the unanimity of condemnation of contraception and abortion by Christendom across the centuries... The Washington Post's editorial board responded to the Anglican announcement in a March 22, 1931 piece, saying, It is impossible to reconcile the doctrine of the divine institution of marriage with any modernistic plan for the mechanical regulation or suppression of human birth. The Church must either reject the plain teachings of the Bible or reject schemes for the quote-unquote scientific production of human souls. Carried to its logical conclusion, the committee's report, if carried into effect, would sound the death knell of marriage as a holy institution by establishing degrading practices which would encourage indiscriminate immorality. The suggestion that the use of legalized contraceptives would be, quote, careful and restrained, unquote, is preposterous. That's an amazing quote. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> The, where where democracy dies in darkness or something or is that what it's i mean you can think about this this is the washington post wow and this shows not that the washington post was christian what it shows is a cumulative effect of the witness of god's people that changed the roman empire from the decadent horror mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. of abandoning their little girls on the slopes the christians picked them up and took them in and adopted them in homes of contracepting themselves of women being in power the ideal marriage of the rich people was always a childless marriage and then christendom hit the church hit 
And within five centuries, the entire practice of the Roman world and the laws had changed. Mm. And then we inherited that in the 20th century. And in the 20th century, uh, American Christians, British Christians, the last couple of decades of the of the 19th century, you do see a drastic falling off of the number of children had on average by pastors mm. in the Anglican Church over in the UK. Interesting. And then you see decades later the adoption of these documents by different denominations, starting with the Anglicans. And then you see the people falling, and then you see the world falling. Then along comes Margaret Sanger, out go the Comstock laws. And it really is precisely the same. If you read the history, it's precisely the same as how Roe v. Wade got passed in 73. It's first the elite. It's first the church waffling, changing its practice. Then what you see is the influence of courts and then the exercise of raw judicial power where abortion laws around the country are thrown out. Hmm. And the Supreme Court, it was basically the same with the Comstock laws against birth control. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, David, you were saying that you want us to go back and reclaim the fact that this is a drastic change because what we were talking about is trying to encourage parents. In one sense, I guess what I was getting at is that part of the great commission and part of the obedience of God's people to himself was just categorically set aside at that time mm. and so and so now when we find people uh coming with this with the the whirlwind that it that ensued from that point and we find people coming to faith in jesus christ we realize that part of that part that of of obedience to god and obedience to christ that we set aside that is part of the package of the of the evangelism of their lives. They come to God and we say to them, you know what? You come to God as male, as female. You come to God submitting to him in your marriage and submitting to his word in what the mm -hmm. fruitfulness of your marriage bed. And suddenly not, we're not just converting them from being a pagan into a Christian uh, setting. Spirit. They're actually being converted into a spirit that is so otherly than the world and so otherly than the church well when i mentioned spirit it's that they're not everything about them every physical thing about them is being converted as well not yeah just yeah their, and it's fascinating because it's it is such an it's such a radical thing to think about that you know now you're you're not at odds with the world the church was always at odds with the world but now the the church we find ourselves at odds with ourselves the church at odds with the church. And it's it's a fight to deal with. Wait, the church at odds with the well, church? Well, because if you're in a church that says, uh, God made marriage our wedding ceremony. We have the three reasons for marriage in the wedding ceremony. Yeah. And you stand up and you say, for, for a fruitful seed, for a fruitful uh, godly seed to be born. Mm -hmm. And you, it, it's as radical as saying, yeah. as, as in the vows to say, uh, the wife would obey the husband in the vows. Yeah. And, and it, it is as otherly as that. And, and in even in both, the church. Yes. Yeah, in yeah. both places, it is that otherly in the, the area of the world that causes itself god's people mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's bizarre to think about what we have to understand is that we're not talking about scripture we're talking about church history 
So far, yes. But trust me, if we go to Scripture, the argument is inescapable, incontrovertible. It is so overwhelming. And people don't realize it because we've hardened our hearts against the propagation of a God we see. But in Malachi, it says, God makes them one, the husband and wife, for, quote, the propagation of a God we see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you've got all the texts that talk about God says, be fruitful and multiply, yep. fill the earth. Fill the earth, yeah. And, you know, it just blows people's minds when you tell them that, you know, you take the whole population of the world, put it in Texas, and everybody will be have half an acre to have a garden. <laughs> <laughs> now, I may be off a little bit, but I'm not off by much. Yeah, yeah. And God, and I have lived long enough to be able to hear the alarmism that regularly is sold to the Western world. You know, yeah. I'm old enough to remember Ehrlich and the Club of Rome and, and you know, their statement that in a few years, they were going to have riots in India and China around the world competing for food. And then the Green Revolution hit. You know, and all of a sudden something incomprehensible to all previous scholars hit, which was that both China and India became self-sustaining with food. And of course, the the, the ironic thing about that is that, you, you know, you think of the, the sex-selective abortion and the fact that there's so many more men in India and China. And China and Korea and, was the first place that's, that did that. And, and you, we haven't even begun to see the societal result of that, but it's not going to be good. It's I, You can't imagine it's not going to include Men war. are not happy. <laughs> you know, you remember that paper that you read? It is your, not good for a man to be alone. <laughs> well, you remember that paper on African music and the development of rap mm. where the South mm-hmm, Africans mm-hmm. took all the Africans and put them up in mines away from their wife and children mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and an awful lot of bad doo-doo well yeah i mean it's it's fight club you just have fight club yeah constantly so mm-hmm. going back to the issue of scripture i'm reading right now through psalms and mm-hmm. um read psalm 11 look at the fecundity of god in his creation read around psalm 11 you know and then you read and this stuff is all through Scripture. So you start out with the command to be fruitful and multiply. You hear that God makes them for the propagation of a God we see. He makes them one, the husband yep, and wife. Yep. <clears throat> but then you get to places like this. This is Psalm 113. It ends with this statement. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high? He humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Mm. That stuff is all through scripture, mm-hmm. everywhere. And it's what I write in the margins of the Bible with C or F, fruitfulness. Mm-hmm. He has built fruitfulness into his creation and what person in their right mind when i'm reading this and it's lauding god and glorifying him for the things he does and it says he raises the poor from the dust and we say now wait a second you don't want to raise all the poor from the dust it's a question of stewardship just because it's a blessing from god to lift the poor from the dust doesn't mean that we should just be lifting the poor from I mean, it's ludicrous that anybody would say that. Yeah. Yet yep. then when you get, he makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. All of a sudden we're like, now, wait a second. She shouldn't just be willy nilly having children. We have to be stewards of the resources, you know. And you guys were talking earlier about the difficulty of children. And I was sitting here thinking, 
Yeah, you know what's really difficult about having children is they enforce sanctification. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how are you gonna how are you gonna grow if you don't have a wife? Now, I don't want to be a cynic about this, but I mean, how much of our growth in godliness is a function of knowing our women and just looking at them and thinking about the things they suffer, about their selflessness with their children, of how would they put up with us? So then add in a bunch of children. Mm -hmm. And it is so sanctifying. The opposite is also true. Take the children out Uh. and think about all those people who are fighting and saying, the world is too full. We can't have the people. We can't, we can't, we can't. They don't want to have any children. And think about what their motives truly are. There's nothing to stop them from getting drunk every night. Exactly. They, they're going to have their $10,000 a plate meals. They're going to have their specially designed crust on their specially designed hamburger bun with their specially designed Kobe beef hamburger that's made with... And their adventures. European butter. And and it's like... And their aesthetics. It's just complete. It's just completely bogus. And the body. And the fact that we haven't even yet begun to discover the ways to grow food. Okay. Just think about it. It's it's a fascinating thing. Um, Okay. But there's there's a lot between someone who's committed to having an adventure life and a and a Hollywood body or whatever, and a Christian couple that says, well... Three's enough? Three or four, or so whatever number they want to pick is enough. Um, you know, we've talked about the witness of Scripture. We've talked about the witness of the Christian church throughout the centuries. And clearly, it's that children are a blessing, obviously. You can't hit a page of Scripture practically without it. Well, commanding. and children being a blessing... Absolutely, all through Scripture is put cheek by jowl right next to he will make your cows calve. Mm. He will make your trees bear fruit. He will send rain. He, In other words, God's blessings can't be separated into the blessing of children and the blessing of a calf. It's the same God. It's the same blessing. He has written fruitfulness, fecundity into his creation. It is a good principle, and it's commanded. You know, in other words, I'm going... (laughs) I'm going like authority here. Okay. In other words, Scripture commands it. Commands. This is always what the church has said, what God's people have said, that God commands us to give ourselves to him to open and close the womb. It is not proper for us to make a lifestyle decision to not have children. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Go ahead. if, If you've got three or four kids... You've been fruitful. No, you haven't been fruitful because each of those children was a decision. And that's contrary to what Scripture commands and teaches. And it's contrary to what the church has always said that Scripture teaches, which is that we are to give ourselves to God in the matter of children. That the marriage bed, the way the Pope, the Roman Catholic Church puts it, is beautiful. It says, God intended marriage to unite the unitive and the procreative function mm. in the marriage bed. Mm. We're not supposed to be sitting there caressing each other and then quick reaching for the diaphragm. Mm. In other words, it's interruptive even in the act itself, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so what we need to do is go back and think, okay, am I really in agreement with the history of the church in the Western world and Christendom? Mm-hmm. 
And then if we say no, then we have to justify it. And if you say, well, my wife had- Well, hold on. You said, am I really in agreement? I'm trying to figure out what that, I'm trying to specify what well, that agreement is. And so- Is it re- is it required? Go ahead, say yeah, the word. Yeah, so- <laughs> I mean, this is this is the this is the objection or the question that always comes up in these circumstances. Clearly, fruitfulness is rec- is commended without reservation throughout Scripture and church history, but that's not the same as, as saying that every sexual act between a man and a, and his wife needs. It's not like sexual intimacy without the possibility of conception is sin. No, because then they're okay. going to think, what about older people? Right, right. What about after menopause? Well, so oh, there's older, I mean, there's older people, there's folks who can't conceive for whatever reason. My brother Nathan had cystic mm-hmm. fibrosis. He was not able so, to So children. if it's not sin for them, then why would it be sin for a couples to use birth control at times? In America today and in the Western world, we think that choice is an a, a, an entire good. That mm-hmm, the, the, mm-hmm. It is an unqualified good is choice. Mm-hmm. And so we think that the more choices we have, the better off we are. And so we approach having children that way. And that's why there's all this talk about every child a wanted child. Yeah. Okay. And Which unplanned a, pregnancies. Oh my goodness! And so, what what we're saying is, if we were to return to the period prior to Lambeth, okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is less than a century ago, if we were to t- return to that time, mm-hmm. we would realize that all Christians and really everyone in the Western world, including the Washington Post, were horrified at the idea of obstructing pregnancy in the marriage bed. Okay, now can we all look at that? categorical statement i defy anybody to prove i'm wrong from history from any church document we can find as i said lambeth at their decennial two decades before condemning contraceptive and birth control condemning obstructing pregnancy in the marriage bed okay do we agree with that or don't we and you say well do we have to require if they have three to four children i'm not talking about how many children you have i'm saying that we just assume that the ability to steward how many children we have is a blessing from God. That's the way all the conservative reform guys would say. Yep. You know, and I can name names here. Yep. They would yep. say, we have an obligation to be stewards, and we have to be responsible. You know, one of my famous well, friends saying, yeah. <clears throat> you have as many children as you can educate well. Well, provide for, and, and that provision. Well, no, uh, educate well. well. Uh, I mean, I provision in Christian circles is going to include education. It's gonna, The other things that I've seen, and I was just reading to prepare for this, is, is medical care, which is going to scare any young father. It's, afford groceries from Whole Foods. What? As many children as you can afford to feed only by feed groceries healthily. from Whole Foods. Oh, oh, yeah, feed healthily. None of this, uh, you know, Wonder Bread stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, but Lucas, here's the deal on this. Okay. I've been through this so often with people in the church. Yep. And they'll come to me, have a marriage appointment. They'll say to me, should we use birth control? And they'll give me their reasons for using birth control. They want me to make a decision. Yeah, I have similar things with rich men who own businesses. Should I tithe on the gross or the net? Yeah, yeah. You, you get a lot of questions like this from people. Uh-huh. And what I say to the guy that asks about tithing on the net or gross or to the couple asking me whether they should use birth control is I say to them, it's not my decision. It's your decision. Now, can I help you think through the decision? And then what I do 
with the issue of birth control, as I say to the couple, would you describe to me your understanding of the purpose of marriage? I want to hear whether or not they understand that one of the purposes is the propagation of a God we seed. Right. Then I test them to see whether they love that purpose. Okay? Mm-hmm. In other words, I'm looking at motives. Yeah. And if they love that purpose, then I ask if they can describe to me the biblical doctrine of fruitfulness and God. And it's fascinating because you see the growing tension in this is they want to know about whether I think they should use birth control. I say, teach me whether you know this doctrine, this doctrine, this doctrine. Then I watch and see if they love this doctrine, this doctrine, this doctrine. And then if they do, if they know the doctrines and if they love them, then I look at them and I say, well, I said, you're in perfect position to make a decision whether or not to use birth control. Of course, that's not what they're expecting. They're expecting me to say, well, why would you use birth control? And almost always at that point, the couple looks at me and they say, yeah, we didn't really want to use birth control, but we thought, are we being stupid? Or the husband will say, well, my wife wants more children, but I don't. In other words, then the real issue comes out that there's actually fear, Mm -hmm. unbelief, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that there's fighting in the marriage, that there's this, that, and the other thing. Sometimes, and this has happened a few times, what comes out is that the wife went into the garage after she had her third and she left her car running and she closed the door and the kids were in the house and and she wanted to die and yeah. she was found. Yeah. Now, in a situation like that, not dead. Just want to Yeah, say. she was not yeah, she was actually not dead. <laughs> yeah. She was saved. But then they decided that they would not have any more children. Mm-hmm. And they took steps to do it in a mechanical way, you know, that was unalterable because they felt that children placed their whole household, the marriage, and their children in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And of course, I agreed with them on that. Well, they thought that the postpartum depression that ensued so horrifically if she was pregnant and had a child was what put everything in jeopardy. I just wanted to clarify that. Including the previous children. So it's not that there aren't cases where, for various reasons, you believe that. But remember, that the people that argue for birth control, the same arguments are used to kill unborn children. I remember my first week here in Bloomington at my former church, the head of the board of elders came to me and told me that he had basically encouraged a member of our staff to have abort his child. Hmm. And it was because they'd found out that the mother had gotten pregnant while she was on a medication. They didn't want to have a defective child. Hmm. All right. And I looked at this man, very sophisticated man, professor, you know, all this other stuff. And I said to him, why would you ever do that to them? And he looked at me and he said, well, I consider abortion as a question of stewardship. Mm -hmm. What I want people to understand is that when we as Christians decided we love money and not God, and I really do believe it's that simple, when we decided that we would rather be rich in money than mm-hmm. rich in children, mm-hmm. okay? That And that our bodies didn't matter. Our cells were what mattered, you know, the Women's Health Co-op in Boston, our bodies, ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that we were going to be dualists and that we were going to relegate the significance of breasts in a womb, the significance of shoulders, and that we were going to live according to our decisions. It all flowed from there. 
it started with the Comstock laws, then it moved into abortion, mm -hmm. and then it moved into homosexuality, and then it moved into homosexual marriage in Obergefell. It's inevitable. Mm -hmm. Once you decide that you're not going to submit to God in the most basic physical aspects of his creation, mm -hmm. and that your Christian stewardship matters more than his fecundity and fertility and blessing and fruitfulness okay and provision yeah and having to wait on him for that provision it's all over mm. we think we've seen the end of it with obergefell and so we're all adamant that we won't oh I you mean, know the Supreme transgender Court. is yeah yeah but i mean it transgender it's going to go to zoophilia it's going to yeah, go yeah. to every it's incest no question the yeah, age yeah, of yeah. consent's going to go down and i'm just wondering at what point will christians wonder whether or not hmm. we should have flipped the entire purpose of marriage and manhood and womanhood hmm. you know can we at some point sometime I, i'm ready to die you know i'm going to die in the next few years i don't know how long god has for me regardless when are we going to begin to doubt ourselves hmm. when are pastors going to begin to go back to scripture and teach what scripture says and commands, you know? And you go through history and people are sitting here saying, well, I don't trust you to tell us the truth about church history. And I say, read the marriage book when it comes out, all the citations are there. Yeah. Okay, well, Jody mentioned before we started the difficulty of, the, a lot of difficulties of this pastoral work is that there's just so, so many important things, but it gets so raw, right? Mm -hmm. And that's that's the reality with this. Um, I don't know how to do this other than to say, what you leave me with is assuming that it is sin to use birth control. And so, so then I think, okay. Yeah, but I did qualify that. You did, you did. But then I think, well, okay, my wife's never been in the garage wanting to kill herself so then you know i don't know if this is the pharisee in me but it's like i want to take it at, and at just thinking about this from a different perspective and that is that when we think about how we pr approach fruitfulness in our lives uh -huh. forget about for a minute how many children you have just mm -hmm. th just think about the fact that fruitfulness is something that you embrace mm -hmm. and think about what is it that makes it a negative today in its perception what makes it negative is it's relative to what's out there in other words if you know before this whole thing happened with birth control and couples went into marriage and they weren't thinking about what contraception they were going to use yeah right? they were just assuming. what was relative at the time did anybody think, was anybody thinking about stewardship as they went into marriage with the number of children they were going to have and how many years they would go without having children so that they made sure to have the right, had the right amount of time to grow together as a couple? And these are all the things that we hear. This is what they're coming to Tim to ask him. Well, should we have birth, should we use birth control? You know, and, and what all they're thinking about is the stewardship and all they're thinking about is relative to what people tell us and relative to what everybody is saying, relative to this, people are telling us, you know, have some time, raise some money, you know, make sure of this, get in this right position of, of, of uh, a house or a job or whatever. Yeah. All of these kinds of excuses of, of what kind of, of uh, stewardship that you're going to have over it before you even get to the point of who's telling me all this? Who's out there? Where can I go to find somebody who says, 
A fruitful home is happy. Jody said it earlier. He even compared it to a non-fruitful home. He even compared it to what he Yeah, but was, there, are, there are plenty of homes that are utterly miserable that have lots of kids in them. I know that's true, but there are lots of reasons that homes are utterly miserable that have nothing to do with the number of children. In other words, there are a slew of things that contribute to a miserable home yeah. that aren't the fact that God gave children to it. You yeah. follow what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And so that that's not really it. I mean, it's like it's like we look at it and we relative to what do we have to be barren? We have to be barren because relative to happy people with children, we barrenness is Listen, I want to go back and drive this issue back to bodies and objectivity because God says, be fruitful and multiply. He repeats it to Noah. He repeats it a number of times in Scripture. Yep. And everything we see in Scripture about how God, the Creator, works, even down to the fact that through Christ's death, we will gain many brothers. Christ's death is fruitful. Okay. Yep. Everything about God and the Trinity and his creation is aimed at the universal good of fruitfulness. Okay. Okay. And because intellectuals and philosophers and misers have decided that we don't have enough of food, we don't have enough in the environment, we don't have this and that and the other thing that we can just have people breeding like rabbits. Since one of Christians, sought to justify themselves to pagans and worldlings instead of God. All these arguments are an attempt to drive the question back to a question of stewardship. And I keep saying, if God, if God has commanded us to do something, we need to obey. We don't need to stipulate. And yes. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I, I don't know. But you keep asking me, well, do we have to? No. The question I have as a as a husband with a lot of kids is you know you have qualified and said that there are times when birth control is 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 not sinful but i've never felt easy in my own conscience about birth control even though we've used it as a couple and i don't like that i i, I it's kind of like it makes me think of of you know the discipline of children either but 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 let's be very careful here okay you don't like that you feel uneasy. Yeah. All yep. right. Do you feel uneasy because I am watching you to see whether you're having more children? I don't think so. Do you think anybody in our church is living for the approval of other people with how? Yes. Who? Well, I think it's a, I think it's a very common thing. In, in, uh, I don't think it is in our no, church. I wouldn't call it common, but I think there are one or two people. Out of would, a out ton. Of, yeah, out of a ton. Yeah, And so what I'm saying is, remember how I described how I will handle a couple coming to me? I won't say you are required. Yeah, but yeah. I'll say, would you give me the doctrine of fruitfulness? Would you give me the doctrine of marriage? Would you tell me the purposes of marriage? Which, why does God make you want? Mm -hmm. If they can go through all those things and then give an explanation as to their fears, their... And then at that point, you can say, hey, listen, this is a church. We have lots of money given to the deacons. If you find yourself in need, we have a long history of helping people in need. Mm -hmm. Or listen, you really shouldn't fight with your wife about it. Yeah, you're going to get deployed soon probably, but there are going to be a lot of older men 
who are going to be available to help with the discipline of the children. We do that. You know, we do have pastors and elders help with the discipline of children if the father is out on the road, you know. In yeah. other words, can we please stop discussing everything as if we're doing a cost-benefit analysis or we're Jeremiah Bentham with utilitarianism, where you have to weigh this and weigh that, and then you come with this decision, and it's like, it's like, no. Can we please be free to live the way past generations lived, which is to meet the announcement of new pregnancy with fear and trembling and sickness unto death and joy? <laughs> and does it ever get more sophisticated than that? I don't think so. And I think I and think can I'm we with have, you. Can't we have lovemaking be an act of faith? And isn't it true that when your wife goes past menopause, uh -huh. Isn't it true that life becomes uh, less exciting? <laughs> no, no, I'm I'm being real serious yeah, here. Let's yeah. talk here. Yeah. I mean, there is something about the possibility of having a risk ahead. is what makes things interesting, <laughs> including <laughs> sex. Yeah, that's why, that's why I like to go on backpacking trips. <laughs> There's some risk. It's a different kind of risk than I yeah, right. yeah, right. Risk. Well, a very practical way of looking at it is if you if you ever talk to a woman who's had, because of some physical problem or something, had to have a hysterectomy, their sense of that loss mm -hmm. is acute. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Even if they weren't consciously thinking about having more children. Mm -hmm. Their sense of loss is just very, very inconsolable. Acute. Yeah, yeah. And I talk in the book on marriage about how when our final child left and we were empty nesters, I yeah. could not bear eating at the table anymore. Yeah. I could not bear it. Mary Lee would set the big table and all I could see was just oodles of empty chairs. Mm. And so we have never eaten at the table again since. <laughs> well, by yourselves, you mean. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. go to the counter. Yeah. Because at least at the counter, we're not faced with a whole table where there's, and when our families come over and there's kids everywhere, <laughs> it's like I die and go to heaven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things that has been helpful to me to hear from you, Tim, in the past is that these years are very short. Yeah. They seem really intense. They seem like this is a life sentence of sorts, mm -hmm. but it actually is fleeting. It's very, it's quite short, and there's a lot of life lived after the children are raised and gone. Mm. And that's helped help me maintain perspective mm. as we face these Challenging. decisions. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. About having mm. more children, and we all do face these decisions. In and other that, words, well, people listening to us might think that nobody in our church uses contraception and abortion. Or, well, yeah, actually, we do have people in our church that, sorry, but I've had that confess to me. Go ahead. Well, even just hearing, I had never heard from, I grew up around people who generally embraced fruitfulness, but I right. had never heard anybody talk about the time after the children are gone mm -hmm. and the emptiness and the grief of it mm -hmm. until coming here. And I've heard it now from a number of people, mm -hmm. and I've tried to keep that in mind. I want to... Because these are decisions, and you do face them, and you have to think think through and, and almost motivate yourself. Mm -hmm. And that's been a motivation mm -hmm. to me is to think, you know, this keeps me young. This keeps <laughs> me joyful. This gives me good work to do. This, this makes me smile. Mm. This makes my wife smile. This is, this is a joyful thing. I want to mm -hmm. prolong this joyful season. 
of my life. Mm-hmm. I know I'll be a 60-year-old dad of a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I trust that God will give me it's scary. the strength for that. <laughs> I mean, it is scary because I've seen it. I remember after we thought we were done, two things happened. Number one, one day when she was around 50, Mary Lee came to me and told me that... And Mary Lee and I spent about 24 to 48 hours like sort of walking around in a daze, <laughs> you know? Wow. And, and then the other thing was when Sarah came to live with us and she was my niece and her mother just could not cope with her. Her mother was a widow mm. and my brother had died. And so... And so she called us one day, and Max, you and I drove down there and picked her up, and we're back within 24 hours. And I had a child in my home. And I remember soon after she moved in over at the church office at Pete Ellis, no, not at Pete Ellis, at the at the Morton uh, Street. Morton Street. I remember sitting and for like an hour trying to convince her. I think it was that, no, she did not have a whole herd of stallion horses, Arabian, that she was able to sell to the other members of her class, that that was not real, that that was a lie. And I got nowhere in an hour, nowhere. And I'm intense. I got nowhere. And at the end of that hour, I thought, you know something? At my age, I can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Well, it's, it's, if you're going to run the numbers, there's a real question of stewardship. Can I parent as a 60-year-old dad? Wait a second. Are you serious? Well, I think I'm serious. I am. So you're not making this up. How old are you? I've never figured this out. I'm 40 I'm, years old. I'm 42. He's 42 years old. Well, I so it's it's a stretch to say 60. It's not a stretch to say 55. But I mean... My wife is 33 years old. He could be a 60-year-old dad. <laughs> existential? Is this existential? <laughs> well, I had a real sweet couple in my church who got who had a child way late. And they were older. And I remember watching them. He was a law enforcement officer. And they were both sweet people. But I noticed the child's name was Mark Brenneman. And I just noticed just the sweetness of what he brought to them. You know, it was like a, a pollination in autumn yeah. mm. and tulips in November. You know, it was just so beautiful. And it was so obvious what he did with them. You know, that he gave them new joy in life and new excitement and everything. You know, it was a very beautiful thing. Well, you'd see that with with children who, for some reason, like death of parents or something, are raised by their grandparents. And you see that same reality. Yeah, that's true. There's just a sweetness. And it goes back to the point of the work of God in our lives sanctifying us and giving us the faith to receive these kinds of things from his hand. Mm -hmm. And... The benefits of them. Nobody wants to have a child die and to have to raise their grandchildren in their old age. Mm-hmm. And yet you can know God's mm-hmm. work and his intention and his absolute authority over and control in a situation like that. 
And if you have a, a, a pregnancy when you're older and you and your wife are going to be 65 when your child is in, a, in high school, okay, do you think God can't? If God can give an infant to a grandparent, can God not help you and your wife to raise that child? And you end up saying, like Tim just said, that this was a, a beautiful bouquet of roses. How did you say that in their, in their old age? Just it just freshened thing. them up. Yeah, it really, yeah. you could see it freshening them up. Yeah. If you're a young mother, having these children is extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just a pastor. I'm a pop. I'm a grandpop. And I love the women of our church and the women in my life. And because of that, I'm extremely sensitive to how depressed they get and how sad they get over their failures as mothers. I mean, it's constant. Yeah. And typically the thing that's most difficult for them is how angry and irritated they are with their children because they think that they should just be happy and the perfect mom and never be irritated with these gifts that God's given them. But they're irritated all the time. They're irritated even having to discipline. They think if their children loved them, they wouldn't make them discipline them. (laughs) You know, that's a common, common thing. And so I will say to some of these young mothers that I'll see on Sunday morning and they're weighed down, I can tell this is not a good week for them. And I'll go up to them and I'll say to them, you know, sweetie, and I've, you know, I've said this to my own daughters, the years that you have these children in your home, they seem overwhelming and it seems like it will never end. But I want you to know that you will spend many more years with an empty nest with your husband than you will as a mother of children. And in the case of my mother-in-law, she had 10 children in 14 years, Mrs. Taylor, Mm -hmm. and she lived 101, or 100, 100, 101, something like that. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of her married life was lived without children in her home, Hmm. let alone her whole life. And so I just want to say to people, you don't have to justify having children. Mm-hmm. And don't listen to the godless pastors and elders. I just read this today, an email that I got from one of the elders in Evangel Presbytery, and he writes me and he says this. He says, though I have seven children and my wife has been pregnant nine times, two miscarriages, Mm. still yet there has been so much negative pressure and influence in our lives regarding fruitfulness. Not just from the world, and by the way, this I, I haven't known this man until recently. I've had nothing to do with his formation. Not just from the world, but from family and friends, from fellow Christians in the church. We are all influenced, no matter how much we may try to pretend that we can be objective with important matters. I know that I have been influenced, and yet I am guilty and complicit in thinking and acting wrongly regarding fruitfulness, the sanctity of life, and our proactive life of faith to what God has called to us. Mm-hmm. So my point is that even for someone like me who appears to be on the fruitful side of the equation with a large family in the church, this document has been convicting and helpful, and I, I, I believe it would be of great value and usefulness to the church. Mm-hmm. And this guy... He's a sweetheart. He's humble. Yeah. You just think of how aggressive the main reason that people 
who are godly don't have children and regret it and are embarrassed and wait months to tell their parents they're pregnant again is because of evangelical Christians and Reformed Christians Mm. who are zealous to shut down other people having the joy that they have chosen not to have themselves. Mm. And they don't want to have to be responsible. They don't want to have to hear about another birth. Mm-hmm. And it's aggressive in the reformed world. You read some of these guys talking against people having a number of children. Yeah. And, you know, you're going to have an average of what would you say across the board? I would say seven. Who's Another, have that well, just that the natural number of children you will have if you don't practice birth control, I think on average would be about seven. That sounds right. Yeah. So before we end, we really do need to talk about forms of birth control. I think there's so much confusion and naivete, uh, willful naivete about different forms of birth control that I think we, we need to talk about it. So one of the things that you men work to establish in this paper is that a lot, a lot of what is sold as birth control is actually just abortifacient. Partly. Okay. Can you, can you just open that up for us? So the good way to think about it is think of abortion as being several methods. One is surgical, and that's what all the pro-life people are, are opposed to because it's bloody, it's gory, it, it involves invasive procedures in the woman's body. It's humiliating, it's savage. You have products left. That is less than half of the abortions that are properly called abortions by the Guttmacher and Planned Parenthood in the World Health Organization. Okay, yep. So it really is so quickly diminishing that it shouldn't have our attention. Mm-hmm. It is true, there are a lot of them, Yeah. but they're, they're the minority. Then you have various forms of chemical or what the abortion industry calls medication mm-hmm. abortions. Mm-hmm. Um, those are RU486, various levels of intense chemicals given by Planned Parenthood, parallel with surgical. You can choose chemical surgical, Mm -hmm. and you can do it in the mid-trimester, and you can use it fairly late, and that involves uh, killing the child with chemicals in the womb when the child, often when the child is actually viable. A chemical that a woman just ingests by eating or swallowing. Yeah, and that's, are you... 486, RU486 is generally the one that people talk about they can use. Then the third method of obstructing pregnancy or killing the unborn is variously, um, I mean, there are a whole bunch of things. You've got plan B, you've got the pill, you've got all kinds of different methods, but all of them have this in common. Even IUDs, all of them have in common the use of hormones. Okay. Okay. Every form of hormonal method of birth control. Yep. Morning after, the pill, IUDs with various potions, yep. all of that is in a significant number of cases abortifacient. It kills your unborn child. Okay. And it does that by rendering the endometrium, rendering the wall of the womb inhospitable to this little baby being able to attach himself to the womb for nurture and protection. Okay, so you're, you're talking about, are, are you making a distinction there between hormonal birth control, what's sold as hormonal birth control, and what is sold as the, like the morning after pill, as in like if there is, 
Do you see what I'm saying? Everybody calls that stuff contraception. Anything that's hormonal, they'll call contraception other than RU486. Okay. But they lie. It's not preventing conception only. It's also working by preventing the conceived baby from attaching himself to his mother's womb. Okay, so from your from the research that you guys, you men have done, there is no hormonal no. method that is safe for a Christian to use. Yeah, unless you're comfortable throwing, you know, throwing the cards or the dice with your unborn child as long as you intended to keep the conception from happening. If he dies by your killing him, you don't mind that because your <laughs> intent was. But no, this is how we do our, our lives. Yeah. Well, God, I didn't intend that. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. And so that's why I'm being very careful here and saying the pharmaceutical firms are clear, the marketing, the continuing education, the embryology courses, and it's all in this book. Yeah. They're yeah. all absolutely clear that one of the significant agencies of all hormonal methods of birth control is to prevent implantation. Mm -hmm. And what's being prevented from implanting is a human being, a little boy, a little girl, who bears the image of God and who God created. In your understanding, is there any kind of drug, chemical that a woman ingests? Or it's on the IUD. You know, you have different forms of IUD, and IUD is supposed to be a barrier. Yeah. All of these things work mostly okay mm -hmm. all of them work mostly by rendering the woman's body inhospitable to the sperm fertilizing the, the ovum the ovum yeah okay mm -hmm. and so everybody will tell you well that's the agency but then if you ask them does it have any other agency they won't want to answer yeah but all the literature is clear the continuing ed courses the embryology courses the pharmaceutical you know that sheet of paper that you crumple up when you get your new drugs you know and throw out yep, you know yep, yep. all of it makes it clear okay and that's yep. all documented in this book so what you need to know is if you have a special vulnerability, you need to use a barrier method. Mm. And you need to recognize that barrier methods are not as dependable as just, you know, whacking your body with drugs. Mm. And so if you use uh, barrier methods like a diaphragm, like a condom, mm -hmm. okay, mm -hmm. there's a reason condom didn't just take care of HIV. Mm. All right, and that is that all these forms are subject to much more breakthrough pregnancies is what they call them. Mm. And then you also have the option of cutting uh, inside the body in such a way as to obstruct uh, the man's sperm having the ability to get inside the woman or the woman being able to conceive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that those are things those called- Those are permanent. Yeah, so. sterilization. But they're not actually permanent. And the interesting thing is Planned Parenthood itself says that one-third of the people who get themselves sterilized regret it. Hmm. And so you just have to be careful of what you do to your body because your husband might die. Mm. And you might have a new husband. And you might want to have a child with your new husband. Mm. And so I don't know. I'm sorry to be talking about this stuff. I'm not a doctor. Yeah. But we have uh, been very careful. And we have biochemists and we have a uh, very uh, number of PhDs. And all the indications are being 
handled very precisely and carefully mm-hmm. at this point. Mm-hmm. And so I expect that this is the point at which we will have the greatest hostility to the document. Mm-hmm. And it's because the church is filled with people who have spent their lives obstructing using hormones. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we're very pastoral about it, explaining to them that they need to stop doing this. And so I don't have any question that every church has many people, many, many people who have actually killed. Mm-hmm. Because even though the agency is not the normal method of this and that form of birth control, not contraception, because, okay. Right, right. Even if the primary agency is not a board of fashion, yeah. we even have figured out the statistics of how many months and years it takes for a woman using a certain form of hormonal method to almost certainly have aborted one of her children. Hmm. Okay, do you understand yep, that? Yep, because yep. we know what the statistics are about how often you have breakthrough pregnancies mm-hmm. with a particular form of hormonal method of birth control and then you extrapolate that out to right. if it's this percent every month and this percent every year and you know basically one of the methods that was just written down recently in the document was it's basically every three years it's likely that she will have a child that she conceives that it will instead work by preventing that child it's implanting on the wall of her womb mm. And I think it's important for us to say we recognize that this is the culture that we live in. So if you're listening to this and you have been using these forms of birth control, your conscience may weigh you down. Let me respond to that a second. There needs to be a basic premise that we all have as we read scripture, and that is whatever the sin is, we should say to ourselves, I'm guilty of that, Mm. right? And so when we read all through the Old Testament about the Jews— slaughtering their children Mm. in the worship of Moloch, Mm -hmm. Jewish kings being done in Jerusalem, okay? It's all through the Old Testament. It's in the book of Psalms. Yeah. When we read that, we should think to ourselves, I'm tempted by that. I've done that. (laughs) Not because we know. And then we go searching for how we've done it. Mm -hmm. And so it is nothing new for God's people to sacrifice their children on the... the altars of the idols of the day and our idols today are not this big you know demon god of moloch that you burn your children in its mouth but i mean really how much different is that than the planned parenthood downtown here right flushing the little ones or throwing them in the dumpster right and so did we really become Christians so we never had to confess sin anymore? Right, no. And did we really think that when the bloodshed of the innocents is such a constant theme in Scripture of something that God hates and warns his people against, do we really think that the church is not full of bloodshed of innocence? Mm. No, it's full of it. Mm-hmm. So we need to believe that God, go ahead. Even deeper still is the question, do we really think that heaven's not going to be full of murderers? Mm. And it is. <laughs> and sodomites. Yeah. And Pharisees. Yep. And liars. <laughs> Thieves. Yeah, so go Well, ahead, what Joey. are they supposed to do with their conscience? Find somebody who is a shepherd that will love you. Mm-hmm. 
That's what I'm thinking. I think, Lord willing, the people who are listening and feeling this way, they'll have to exercise judgment because what you don't want to send them is to a pastor who doesn't care. Right. Or we is condemn going to, them. Or is using hormonal birth control. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like going and confessing pornography to a pastor that's. Our basic orientation, though, is to, is to send people to their pastor and Absolutely. not to internet celebrities. <laughs> so I feel mm-hmm. torn in this. My principles are in conflict with each other. Uh, but I I do want people to, to go to their pastors and confess their mm-hmm. sin. Yeah. But or elders or an older I, woman. I was thinking church. that maybe an elder in this case might be yeah. the safer bet. Mm. Or call Jody. Call Lucas. Call me. Call Max. Well, we'd love to pray with you and uh, strengthen you, encourage you, be helpful in any way we can be to help you to understand how to live believing in what God has promised. Yeah, that's right. To have faith in God's forgiveness that we need every day. Yeah, and another thing I want to say is a lot of people, I've never met anyone who's ever presented this argument to their doctor about the birth control pill. I've never met anyone yet who's presented this argument to their doctor where their doctor hasn't said, oh, no, 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 no. The birth control pill does not have any abortifacient problems. Mm. And the thing is that you're going to say, oh, my doctor said, my doctor said, and I'm just, what you're going to see in this, this thing that's published, but what you're going to see if you read the print in the box of the birth control pill. Mm-hmm. If you go online and read what the company says, the reason why they're able to say that and, and have it justified in their minds is because they are defining pregnancy as implantation. Mm. And they defined that that way at a certain point in history, as Pastor Bailey said a, few, a while back in this conversation, they defined it that way at a certain point in history when the uh, uh, oral birth control pill came on the market because they knew what it was what it was bringing they knew that that implantation was at stake with the, with that pill mm-hmm. and so they changed the definition of pregnancy from conception to implantation at that time just realize you're not going to find a doctor even i don't know a, a doctor who's a christian i don't know if a doctor who's a christian would say this because i've never heard of one yeah. Well, yeah. so when I was involved with Presbyterians Pro Life back in the 1980s, we had a Godway doctor who was a part of uh, College Hill Pres in Cincinnati. I won't name him. He was an elder there. He was a Godway man, Godway wife. I don't know why I did it, but one day I said to him, I said, I've heard talk that one of the agencies of the birth control pill is preventing implantation. Is that true? And he did respond the way you said he would, was no, 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 no. And I said, seriously? He said, well, he said, that's the reason that I prescribe uh, high estrogen pills and not low estrogen, because high estrogen are much safer in that regard. Okay. Huh? No, I was just going to say much. Yes, yes. And that's the problem. And that's what you're going to run into. Is yeah. you, and then I have a, a pastor friend who was just endorsing birth control pills in his national ministry. And I, I talked to him on the phone and I said, you should not be commending the birth control pill. It regularly has an agency of killing the unborn child. Well, he was poo-pooing it because he hadn't read anything on it. That's the thing. People today won't argue and they won't read. They feel certain ways and 
that's all they need is for them to feel certain ways. Mm. Well, I remember this man, after he realized that I actually had read, then he said to me, well, everything in life has risks. I mean, if you get in the car to go to church, you could die on the way to church. Now, if I told you the name of and this And if your dude, children died with you in the back, would you have been a murderer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, that's what he was saying. And listen, that's the kind of bombast and, and bluster and bimbo talk <laughs> that you're going to get if you get a conscience at the place that the church has defied God and refuses to receive from his hand his most special blessings. And it's because the church is filled with bad consciences and misery loves company. And it really is that level. Mm. An awful lot of the church is a scheme to rob God of his glory and to act as if we're obeying when we're disobeying. Mm -hmm. And an awful lot of pastors are hired to protect congregations from the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying this because I'm cynical. I'm saying this because this is what I see in Scripture. This is what I see in the Gospels, you know, and this is what I see in the New Testament. And so we have to put our big boy pants on and confess sin. I, I want to end on, as has been well established in this episode, I have seven kids. And the- How many? I have seven. Good. And so the, the tension I feel about this, and I was talking earlier about my uneasy conscience on this matter. And, you know, as I've been sitting here th listening and talking in this conversation, I think what I'm really describing is actually just the, the existential terror of living by faith Absolutely. is just really what it is. And I think it is scary because it's dangerous. I mean, it is dangerous and hard, but the joys that Jody mentioned are very, very real. And I just want to say, I think I've brought it up in this podcast before, but the, the joy of our latest addition to the week's household has been just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, Pascal Poppy uh, is <laughs> our little less than one years old. Uh, she was born right around Easter and she has been a, just a sweet, sweet joy the other children have just loved her. It's just, I mean, all her brothers adore her. And even, uh, you know, the, the thing in, in my home in particular that, that adds a particular kind of twist is that my fifth child, uh, Mary, is handicapped. And so it's, you know, this is what I'm, this is the pressure that I'm always thinking about, that she, she herself is a special, unique kind of pressure and puts sort of puts the finger on the scales a little bit more than any other of the other kids. And so so I think you but know But she's not the only one with unique needs either. You have children with dietary complications which are significant. Oh, uh, it's all in their head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> I um, tease them. It's funny that. because things are things are all relative. You yeah, know what I mean? It's yeah. like I don't even think about those things because of yeah. But but it's true. Because it's, it's so much Well, worse. I say that so people listening understand that there's there are dietary things that I think that are a function of over-much over thinking and yeah, 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 yeah. Um, <laughs> wanting special problems. But when, when one of your children comes over 
uh, I won't name that has <laughs> dietary challenges is like, oh my goodness. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what to feed them. <laughs> yeah. I always try to get her to eat something she's not supposed to eat when she's at our table. Oh, come on. You don't need to eat eggs. Go on, eat some of those mixed nuts. And she gives me the sweetest look on the face of the earth. And she says, well, I'm willing to, but I know I'll get sick. <laughs> Yeah, we just stick all nice. our guests with an EpiPen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Lucas, can I say? Yeah. It's fascinating because even with Mary, yeah, you and Hannah meet that gift and that suffering with faith. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And that. That's that the, and it is but, a gift to your whole family and to our whole church. Mm-hmm. Yes, but I mean we will never really be able to quantify the mixture of the gift of faith and the gift of Mary mm-hmm. and its fruit in the lives of not just yeah. your children, but uh, and your, you and your wife, but your whole family, Tim, and as Jody just said, the, the entire life of the church mm-hmm. and, couple the, of us and were, the community. Well, a couple of us were standing in the back of the room on Sunday I think there was an usher there, and I just sidled up next to him. We were just observing things, and some kid <laughs> that was not a part of your family yeah, was yeah. pushing Mary around in her wheelchair at the back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was so now, sweet. Okay, so now, now think about this a second. So everybody thinks that what we're thinking is just that it was so sweet. What nobody realizes is that I watch that as I go up to preach every Sunday. And it's almost as helpful as Jody, you're leading the music. It gives me faith to preach. And this last Sunday, I got this sweet gift from Mary that she said to me, I love you. Yeah. It was like mind boggling. (laughs) Now, Brie had to say, say, I say, but Mary knew what she was doing and Uh she actually Uh said it to me. Nice. And so, what it is, if you can handle this, is Mary is a tenderizer for the people of God. Yeah, yeah. Everybody gets tenderized. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it's not just a gift to you and Hannah. I couldn't understand what Mary was gonna, was saying to me. I think she was saying, I think you're fat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe so. <clears throat> so much of what we've been talking about the essence of things as you listen to conversations like this and God's blessings come with weight and pain. Mm-hmm. Responsibility. And sometimes yep. his, the, the pain comes first and the blessing after. Sometimes the blessing and you don't know that the pain is coming <laughs> comes with pain. <laughs> but his, his, his greatest kindnesses in life, one of the greatest kindnesses in life is children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet it does come with difficulty. Mm-hmm. Marriage is a incredible blessing and and a sweet comfort and joy, and it's also incredibly difficult to maintain, to give yourself to, to work through, yeah, to learn to live with another person, particularly a woman, as a man or a man if you're a woman, it's a very difficult work. We cut ourselves off from so many joys because we're unwilling to embrace the suffering and the difficulty that God has. Um, ordained should That's attend right. it. And Mary's a wonderful example mm-hmm. of that because we wouldn't, none of us would choose a Mary. Right. 
to have as their child, but you trusted God to give you what you needed. And you, we've seen you love her. We've seen your special attentiveness to her and your concern for her and your affection for her, which is not separable from the pain of caring for her. It's like with Bob. Yeah. There were lots of pains that Bob endured being cared for and that we endured caring for Bob. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And our affection for Bob is higher than for most people. Yeah. If you've lived with him, I for just a short time, some men for many years. Yeah. Uh, Bob was a man, a quadriplegic in our church that passed away recently and was uh, cared for by young men in our church. When we approach life and the pains of life, in faith or just decisions in life and faith mm-hmm. there's going to be pain attending it there's going to be joy attending it. i think the joy increases as the pain increases in mm-hmm. many cases yep as it is with mary and with bob mm-hmm. i just think of watching mary lee help hannah yeah and i mean nothing gives me as much joy I know that these decisions are difficult as people are listening they weigh these things and it and it's a challenge to them to live by faith but i almost want to say to you if you you want to have a shallow life thanks so much for listening for more great content please visit warhornmedia.com to support this podcast you can donate at patreon.com slash out of our minds bye for now 